Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we can declare here in the love of Christ we stand. In that love, Father, I pray that you would feed us tonight from your word and that you would give us confidence in the hope that the resurrection declares. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, our sermon text for this evening comes out of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 26. By the way, if this is your first time here with us tonight, um, my name's Eric. I'm the pastor here. Good to be with you here and so glad that you were able to make it. I want to remind you, directly following the service this evening, we're going to have a celebration dinner downstairs. Uh, some of our members, Sam and Biet and Ian and Johannes, spent hours before the service getting a feast ready for you, and I can't wait to gather with you to do that. So that'll be directly following the service this uh, evening, about 6 o'clock. All right, let's get into the sermon text. It comes from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy, enemy to be destroyed is death. End of reading. I don't know if you know this, but in February uh, 2007, James Cameron, the director of uh, epics like Titanic and Avatar, and I think there's an Avatar 2 coming sometime soon, uh, stood in the back of the New York Public Library and made a statement that, maybe it's an overstatement to say it shook the world, but it definitely got the world's attention, at least for a few minutes. No, he did not announce a sequel to Titanic. Uh, rather... Cameron stood on stage with an archaeologist and other scholars to proclaim that they believed they had found the remains of Jesus of Nazareth. And so arrangements were made for Cameron to produce a documentary of the findings. The Discovery Channel breathlessly promoted the premiere of their world-altering film. Uh, Harper San Francisco would publish a book with the title The Lost Tomb 
of Christ. Could this really be it? Could they have discovered the end of Christianity? Was it a hoax? This whole Christian thing, it's been going on for 2,000 years. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. The night came for the big documentary to show, and, and it didn't go so hot, though the show had big ratings, of course. I mean, it, you know, pretty big claim. And I'm sure it made people a lot of money. Uh, it wasn't long before even the most secular, the most skeptical scholars were crying foul. Uh, it turned out that this new discovery had actually been found in 1980, 27 years earlier. As a matter of fact, the BBC had already done a documentary on the very same tomb in 1996, and the vast majority of archaeological scholars frankly laughed at the claims that Cameron's team were making. Numerous scholars that were quoted in the documentary as being in agreement with the findings actually ended up recanting their uh, views or what they had said earlier. And in the end, William Dever, an archaeologist, said it well when, when he said that Cameron's team's conclusions were already drawn in the beginning of the inquiry and that their argument goes far beyond any reasonable interpretation. All right, good. But what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead at all? And it brings up that question. What if there is no resurrection? What if this is like the greatest April Fool's style prank of all time? There is no resurrection. Now we certainly wouldn't be the first people to wonder if that might be the case in the church at Corinth that I read the letter to tonight. There were members of that church that were even denying that resurrection could take place at all. Like it was just like they were saying it was done. There was no chance. And our text is a response to that proposition. So then, what if there was no resurrection? Well, Paul writes first, if Christ has not been raised, then our message and our faith is in vain. Indeed, that's what verse 14 says. You can look at it in our text. If indeed Christ was not raised from the dead, then number one, the message we preach is nonsense. Number two, the faith that Christians have is also nonsense. That's the way it is. In other words, Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, this whole Christian thing is a gigantic waste of time. Now that might seem obvious to most of us in here, but there are some, and I think their number is growing, that do seek to preach a Jesus that didn't rise from the dead, who was simply a great moral teacher, or maybe even a political revolutionary that really upset the leaders of the day, the governing authorities, whose memory maybe inspired the early church to move forward, but most definitely he was not a Jesus that could have risen from the dead. Because after all, people don't rise from the dead. That's kind of the logic. But in response, Paul says, like, no, even if Jesus were all those things, if he was a great revolutionary teacher and he did all these wonderful things, aside from him rising from the dead, well, frankly, he's not really worth believing in. Because after all, if he can't get himself out of this death business, then what good is he going to be in helping you? That's Paul's case. But that's not all. He says if Jesus has risen from the dead, then, then we have a bigger problem, and that is that we misrepresent God. That's what he says in verse 15. As if it wasn't bad enough to have the whole Christian faith nullified and void by 
what he declared earlier, declaring it to be worthless if Christ is not raised, Paul says we're also in big trouble because that means that we've been saying false things about the true God of heaven and earth by saying that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, I get asked pretty frequently as a pastor, what's God like? And my first response to people as a Christian pastor is, read the Gospels, look at Jesus, and you'll find out what God is like. Well, if it is the case that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, that's actually not a good answer. As a matter of fact, it would be pointing people to somebody who was either delusional or just a big liar. Because he said he was going to rise from the dead all the time. And Paul goes on, he says, if it's the case that our faith is in vain and we're misrepresenting God, then that also means that we're going to face judgment for it. He says in verses 17 and 18 that, well, that means that when we die and we stand before him, that we perish. And the word for perish is literally the word destroyed. It's this, really this kind of harsh term that we'd be judged for every sin and every uh, failure and thought, word, and deed, every mistake will have to be paid for by us and course we can't and so destruction comes and so Paul ends his his sort of logical response to the proposition of what happens if Christ hasn't raised by saying the fact is if he hasn't raised here's what it comes down to we might as well eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die In other words, Paul is saying that if Christ did not raise and does not provide resurrection, that even if there is a God, hedonism makes more sense. Hedonism was actually a philosophy. I mean, we sort of use it, um, you know, almost as slang, you know, to somebody is a, is a heathen or somebody's being hedonistic. But in fact, uh, hedonism was a philosophy that basically said, yeah, the world is meaningless. There really is no guiding thing. There is no reason to be obedient or to try. So might as well eat, drink, and be merry. This is one of their phrases. And Paul uses that phrase and says, yeah, they're basically right. Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Eat as many donuts and as much bacon as you want every day and drink as much booze as you can to escape the problem that everyone faces, namely death. At least you can numb yourself to the reality. And there's plenty of skeptics that realize this. There's plenty of skeptics of Christianity. There's plenty of people, uh, like, you know, for example, Woody Allen, in a quote a long time, a while back, uh, was asked what his perspective on life was. And he said, my perspective on life is I have a very grim, pessimistic view of it. I feel it's a grim, painful, nightmarish, meaningless experience. The only way you can be happy is if you tell yourself some lies and deceive yourself. It was said by Nietzsche, it was said by Freud, one must have one's delusions to live. If you look at life too honestly, and too quickly, it becomes unbearable. And Paul is basically saying the same thing. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, yeah, Basically, life is one long autumn leading to an endless winter. Eat, drink, and be merry for the short time you got. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, Paul says. That's really, I mean, so, I mean, he really lays it on thick. All right, so you may be thinking at this point, like, why... 
did I come out to hear this ball of depression? Because it's pretty darn depressing. And here's the deal. I agree with you. I agree with you. It is depressing. But it's the truth. If there is no resurrection, if this life is all there is, then we can only at best make up meaning, make up a sense that this thing that we're doing matters, but in reality, we're just a bit of space dust that happened to coagulate to give us the illusion that our life actually matters. So, I want you to hear what Paul says next, picturing the angels of heaven applauding thunderously. I want you to hear the words he says next, causing shouts of joy all throughout the heavenly realms, because he emphatically goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised. He doesn't say, in theory, Christ has been raised. He doesn't say, I hope Christ has been raised. But he says, in fact, Christ has been raised. He, Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers are so, they are so intent on displaying Christ as raised, not just as something they want to be true, but something that is absolutely altered in history. They do this a number of ways. They appeal to eyewitnesses constantly. They're constantly saying, we saw him risen from the dead. Now, the skeptical mind, when hearing this, when hearing the claims of resurrection, and it, by the way, I think you should be skeptical when there's a claim of resurrection. I think it's good to ask questions. So the skeptic might say, well... Of course, the gospel writers probably just made it all up to back up their story. To which numerous critics and historians would respond, not necessarily Christians, actually many times not Christians, that that, that, that proposition can't fly, and here's why. Because the gospel writers, writers we know were writing just too early to be getting away with making up stuff. They just were writing too early to get away with making up stuff. There was too many people alive by the time they wrote their Gospels that could have said, what are you talking about? That stuff, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And they could have rebuked it. I mean, it, it, the, the fact is, it was written too soon. This is a big indicator for historians that, yeah, okay, it doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection, but it does prove that they couldn't have just been making all this stuff up. They at least really thought this stuff happened. And besides, the Gospels, remember, aren't even the oldest manuscripts that speak of the resurrection of Jesus. Actually, the letter that I read to you from 1 Corinthians is probably the oldest mention that we have in the Scripture of the resurrection as far as the date of the writing of the letter. It was probably written between 10 and 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus or the crucifixion of Jesus. So early that there's literally no way that there was room for meddling. And what does Paul say there in our passage? It's just before the passage. He says... There was 500 people that saw him at the same time. Now, why does he point that out? It's in the passage in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The reason he points that out is he's essentially telling the Corinthians, hey, don't take my word for it. Go talk to one of those 500 people. He even says they're still alive. Most of them are still alive. They can, they can vouch for it. Add to this the fact that all four Gospels show women being the first ones finding the risen Jesus. Now, 
If they were making up a story about Jesus that wasn't true, the fact is this would have been the absolute worst idea in the world to have women being the ones to discover the empty tomb. Why? Because back in that time, in that society, women, women's word was not allowed in court. It was treated as half a male's testimony. I know that's awful, and of course we see that today and sort of look back at it with, you know, we're sort of disgusted by that, but that was the reality back then. So if you were going to make up a story and you were going to try and sell a religion to the world to try and get yourself power or something like that, you definitely wouldn't want women being the ones to first discover the empty tomb. You'd want Peter or John or, you know, one of the, one of the big dudes, one of the big names, but not some women. No, no, that wouldn't work in the ancient Middle East. Well, then you might say, well, they just thought they saw him risen because they wanted to see him risen so badly. It was wishful for them. They wanted to see it. And again, the response, I mean, it, it, essentially that's saying, well, it's a, it was a hallucination. And the fact is, you still have to deal with the, the idea that 500 people at one time claimed to have seen it. Did they all hallucinate at the same time? Well, you could say, well, maybe it's possible. Okay, well, okay, maybe it's possible. But also consider this. That the resurrection of a single person in the body was not actually a category of thinking for either the Greek-speaking world or the Jewish world. It didn't work, and so there wouldn't have been... If they did hallucinate something, they, they wouldn't likely have hallucinated that. And here's what I mean. In Greek thought, there was nothing worse than matter, evil. It was seen as dirty, inherently. So if one was to be resurrected, it would be their soul alone, but never their body. But Christianity insists that Jesus rose in the body. That would never have occurred to the Greek-speaking world as a vindication for him. That would have been a problem for them. Now go to the other side of the equation. You say, well, in the Jewish-speaking world, the Jews had a doctrine of resurrection. True, they did. But their doctrine of resurrection was the mass of humanity on the final day. There was no conception of a single person rising from the dead. It just wasn't a part of the thought process there. You know, I mean, just here's the thing. Contrary to what we might think about the old world, they just, it was highly unlikely that they wouldn't have, that they would have had a hallucination like that because it wasn't a category they had. You might say, well, the disciples just wanted to make a name for themselves. Well, that turned out bad. Turned out with most of them getting killed in really terrible, torturous ways. I mean, if you hold that view, then you have to hold that they actually knew as they were being tortured and killed that they were lying and they were just like, oh, man, this is a really good joke. High five. But of course, I mean, so here's, the, here's what I'm saying. Disciples, um, people, people die for what they think is true all the time, but might be wrong or might be a lie. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, you name it, right? That happens. What, but, but what you have to believe with this is that people willfully, all of them, died for something they knew to be a lie. That's a totally different thing. Add to that the fact that Literally billions throughout history have claimed to have their lives completely and utterly changed by the risen Christ. And you begin to understand why Paul uses the word fact 
to describe the resurrection. It's a fact. The historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that there are people, indeed, that are not, they're not actually Christians that do believe the evidence suggests that he did actually rise from the dead. They're still not Christians. They still don't, they don't submit to it, but they go, the, the, the historical evidence is so strong, I accept it. If you're interested in one, Pincus Lapid is a, in the name of an Orthodox Jewish scholar who did accept that the resurrection actually happened. All that being said, why is this all such good news? Let's bring it down to the level right here. Let's stop talking about evidence and let's just bring it right here. Why is it so important? Because it changes everything. It means, therefore, you can be raised. Since Jesus defeated death, that means life isn't meaningless. If Jesus rose, that means that God must have a grand overarching plan for this place. The good news is you are not merely random space dust. You are not a cosmic accident. You are not just another mammal waiting to become worm food. Your life does have eternal significance. Well, that's not all. Because Jesus has risen, it means your sins are forgiven. The Bible says Jesus was delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification. And that word justification means to be declared perfect in God's sight. Jesus takes our sins and when he rises again, he declares victory over sin, death, and hell and therefore gives that to us. The resurrection is his vindication to the world that he is who he says he is. And finally, it means that you indeed will live forever. In my, uh, in my calling as a pastor, I've been a pastor now for a little over 10 years. I've had a number of scenarios, um, way too many for me to count, in which I have sat by the bedside of people that are dying or ministered to families that have lost loved ones. I remember one, one young man in a previous congregation I had served uh, was, well, he had, he had been driving fast on the 15 freeway in California and went over the center, uh, center aisle in the, in the inter, on the interstate and got into a terrible car wreck and he died. He's in his teens, just terrible. And I remember someone in, in talking to his older brother, they were very close right after this, asked his older brother, you know, where do you think your brother is right now? And he says, well, I don't believe in God, but I, I'd like to believe, I'd like to believe that he's, he's hanging out in an old hiding spot that he used to go to when we were kids, waiting for me to find him. And I thought, we can't, we can't help it. We can't help. Eternity is set in our hearts. We can't help but strive to find a place where we can anchor our hope that there just might be Life after death. Somehow, some way. And what the resurrection says to you and I is, in fact, there is. But we don't have to just make up a spot. We don't have to just merely hope. But it can be something that gives us strength every single day because there has been one 
that has already risen from the dead and he showed us what it's like. So how do you receive this resurrection for yourself? Well, it's really painfully simple, actually. It's painfully simple. It's saying, please give that to me too. I want that. I believe you died for me, Jesus. I believe you lived for me, and I believe you rose for me. I trust in him. It sounds a little like a quote from Dostoevsky. I'll close with this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hurts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but even to justify all that has happened. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we really do need to be made alive again. We need resurrection. We need the hope that this world is not, not it. That when we die, we, that's not the final goodbye. And that we don't just become uh, one with the earth. But that the things we do here and the relationships we have, they actually do matter. And the resurrection shows us that. We thank you for Jesus taking upon himself our sins at the cross and rising, the dead for our justi- rising from the dead for our justification. And we praise his name for it. Amen.